So as we stay standing, the first Bible reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 27 to 44. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. This is the word of the Lord. Um, our next Bible reading comes from Matthew 27, 45 to 56. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran out and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There was also many women there, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the son of Zebedee. Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. It's so good to have you with us for our Good Friday service. And whether you are, a, you know, yourself a follower of Jesus or whether you are just investigating Christianity, 
whether you describe yourself as kind of spiritual or seeking or whether you describe yourself as more not very spiritual or non-religious. It is so good to have you with us here as we look at the message of Jesus and this ancient story of Good Friday. And we wanted this morning to have a sense of something that is often missing in our culture, a sense of the sacred and the holy. That actually this story is something that has been celebrated um, by the Christian tradition for 2,000 years. And on Good Friday, we get to dive into an ancient message that has modern relevance. Because I would put to you that whoever you are today and with us this morning, that the story of Good Friday is for you because it answers one of the deepest human longings we have, the longing for forgiveness and restoration. I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Truman Capote, an American author. He kind of rose to prominence in the, kind of the second half of the 20th century. But he wrote Breakfast at Tiffany's that was then later made into a movie. I've never read it or seen it, I have to confess. But I did, I did read his other major work, which was called In Cold Blood. And it's, a, it's an incredible uh, work of art. It's a true crime story. And it covers uh, a horrific crime that was committed in Kansas uh, by two men, Perry Smith and Richard Hecock. But what's so significant about it was that after this, Capote, who was considered to be a prodigious writer and whose book was wildly successful, basically never wrote again. And he, after preparing for this novel and, and publishing it, really himself was never the same. And his biographer, Gerald Clark, believes that the seeds of this were when he was researching for In Cold Blood. During that time, he'd gotten close to one of the accused at the time, who was later sentenced and executed, uh, a man called Perry Smith. And Gerald Clark believes that Capote saw in this man almost his darker twin, that actually they had a shared, much shared history. They had a love for art. They both were the products of deprived childhoods. And it was the case that there was a kind of a psychological connection between the two. But where it all came unstuck for Capote was that he knew that if these two men weren't sentenced to death, that his book could never be completed, that his masterpiece would never be published. And he confessed towards the end of his time of meeting these two men that he actually wanted them to die. And the truth was that after this, he never recovered from the guilt of that. The fact that he was willing for other humans to die so that he might publish a major work was something that he, from then on, really couldn't recover from. And what he longed for, really, was some sense of redemption or forgiveness that he never found. Now, it's interesting. We do struggle with guilt, don't we? We don't deal with our brokenness very well. We deal with it either by denial, we just pretend nothing's wrong, or sometimes by distraction, we bury ourselves in work or multiple mild or severe addictions. We would deal with it by redemption. If I just do one really great thing, maybe it will make up for something that's gone wrong or that I've done wrong. We deal with it by romance. If one other person could just look at me and see me as perfect, then maybe I would be. But all of these things are kind of like a temporary bandage to a deep wound that Good Friday has the answer to. That in the story of Jesus... We find what we are looking for and longing for. That is deep and true and soul-healing forgiveness. And so that's the story that we're going to dive into today. And the story starts at 3 a.m. on Friday morning with a betrayal. Jesus spent almost three years of his life 
with disciples around him, but there were 12 disciples in particular who pretty much spent every waking moment with Jesus. And one of them, whose name was Judas, was not like the others. We kind of get clues through the Gospels all the way through that Jesus, the Judas' intentions weren't always pure. He was the one in the group who collected the money that they collected for the poor. And we are told that he'd been stealing from it. But ultimately, his love for money and his greed leads him to a meeting with a high priest called Caiaphas. And Caiaphas offers Judas 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. Jesus is a prominent public figure. And the concern for the religious authorities who wanted to bring him down was that if they tried to arrest him during daylight hours, that there might be an uprising. So they organized with Judas for a time when Jesus will be alone and vulnerable and just with his 12 disciples. And they decide that that's the time that they will strike. And so under the cover of night, Judas leads a small band of soldiers to where Jesus is praying with his disciples. And he says to them, wait here, I'll go over. And the one that I kiss on the cheek, that's Jesus. That's the one to arrest. And he approaches Jesus and he kisses him on the cheek and he says, greetings, rabbi, meaning teacher. And Jesus looks him in the eye and says to him, friend, do what you have come to do. And you could imagine at that point, Judas kind of squirming or pretending not to know what Jesus is talking about. But in that moment, the soldiers come through to arrest Jesus. And as they come to the moment where they're supposed to arrest Jesus, they hesitate. We're not told why, whether they were superstitious or weren't sure about Jesus or they'd heard stories of his power. They hesitate for a moment. And in that moment, one of Jesus' disciples draws a sword and cuts off the ear of one of the, those who have come to arrest him. And at this point, you wonder what Jesus is going to do. But Jesus here tells his disciple Peter to put away his sword. Look what he says in Matthew 27. He says, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and that he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus says, Peter, this is not the time for fighting. I have to go and be arrested. And it has to happen so that the scriptures will be fulfilled. So that the Bible that they had given to them by God could be fulfilled. And you could imagine the confusion of Peter at this point as he sheathes his sword, wondering why Jesus doesn't want himself defended. Not only that, you can imagine the confusion of the disciples as they realize for the first time that one of them is a traitor. That a friend that they thought was one of their best friends has actually betrayed their friend Jesus. And not only that, the confusion as they see Jesus willingly be arrested. This Jesus that they've seen perform miracles, who they know has the power to stop this, goes willingly with these soldiers to his trial. And in all the confusion, all of the disciples, that is all of Jesus' closest friends, flee. They run away. And Jesus is taken to be tried. Now he was in a, a place called Gethsemane and to give you some indication of what's happening a map will come up on the screen. They were in Gethsemane where Je Jesus was betrayed and they move into the city of Jerusalem which is a small city 1.7 kilometers in length and 1.2 kilometers in width and they take him to the high priest's house for a trial. Now this is the same high priest who has just organized for Judas to betray Jesus. Can you just imagine the feeling of going to be tried by someone who is that corrupt? 
knowing that it doesn't matter what you say, whether truth or lie, that the result is you'll be found guilty and that you'll be arrested. And so Jesus, knowing this, submits himself to this trial. And of course, at the end of it, they sentence him to death. But because they are just a temple guard, they don't have any authority to actually put Jesus to death. So what they do is they decide to go to someone who does have the authority to do it, a guy called Pontius Pilate. And to return you to the map, they head about 500 meters north into the city of Jerusalem to the house of the local Roman governor. Now, as this is happening, Judas goes back into the area where Jesus has just been tried. And having seen what's happened, and having seen that his friend is about to die, he tries to undo what he has done and give back the silver that he had taken. But they won't take it from him, and they won't release Jesus. And Judas goes away a guilty man. Now Jesus is brought before Pilate, who was a Roman governor at the time, and Jesus' fate is in his hands. But this man, who actually carried the power of the Roman state, really should have a cut-and-dried case before him. There is, Jesus has broken no Roman law, and certainly no Roman law worthy of death. So what should happen is he comes before Pilate, and Pilate just says, there are no charges here, this man has to go free. But he doesn't. And the reason he doesn't is because he's worried. All of the Jewish authorities who have come to him and the religious leaders want Jesus to be punished. And he's afraid that if he doesn't punish him, then there's going to be an uprising in the city. And we know within recent history that he has put down and suppressed in a bloody manner other uprisings. And so it's not clear whether he's afraid of discipline from Caesar or losing his position of power, or whether he's afraid of the Jewish people and the religious leaders themselves. But for whatever reason, instead of letting an innocent man go, he tries to work out another solution. He knows that if he sentences him to death, he himself might be punished. So he comes up with an alternative. He knows that Jesus is a Galilean. Galilee was an area about 100 kilometers north of Jerusalem where they are right now. And he knows that the ruler of Galilee is actually in town for the Passover feast, a Jewish festival. And so he says, well, isn't Jesus a Galilean? Isn't he from that region up there? Well, send him to Herod because that's his responsibility. And his hope is that this will get the whole situation off his hands. So as we return to the map, Jesus is taken just a little bit south of Pilate and goes to see Herod. And in the early hours of the morning, he is brought before Herod. And Herod is intrigued by Jesus. Because he rules over the area of Galilee, where much of Jesus' ministry has been, he's heard of Jesus. And so he's kind of like, finally, I get to meet this guy I've heard so much about. And he, when Jesus comes before him, Herod's hope is that he might perform some kind of a magic trick for him. He's heard that Jesus does wacky things, and so he's like, all right, hey, hopefully he'll perform a sign for me. But Jesus won't entertain his gesture. In fact, Jesus doesn't even answer any of his questions. He doesn't defend himself or incriminate himself. He says nothing. And Herod grows bored of him and says, I find no charge against this man. And now he sends him back to Pilate. So Jesus is marched to his next trial. And at this point, can you feel the frustration of this? That he's going from trial to trial to trial without a single charge being brought against him, and yet he's not set free. In 1925, there was a, a book published after the death of the author, and it was unfinished. And it was a book called The Trial. It was written by Franz Kafka, and if you've read it, it's a very strange book. The opening sentence of the, of the whole book starts in this way. 
says somebody must have slandered Joseph K. for one morning without having done anything wrong. He was arrested. He's arrested by unidentified agents from an unidentified organization. He's tried for a crime that never gets named throughout the whole book. And his case is escalated through higher and higher courts until eventually he is sentenced and executed and you never find out what it was all about. It is, it's not a happy read. If you're looking to do something over the long weekend, it's probably not the book for you. But it's meant to build in you a sense of the frustration at the insanity of this. Can you feel that in the story that we're looking at? Jesus goes from trial to trial to trial and no one brings a single charge against him. They try to bring false witnesses against him and nothing sticks and yet still he is not released. And so now finally he comes back to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, for the second time. And now Pilate finds himself in a bind. He's, he's running out of options. The crowd still want the blood of this man and yet this man is still innocent. So he comes up again with a solution. Every year we're told the Jewish people had released back to them a prisoner as kind of a goodwill offering. And so he, Pilate comes up with a, an idea that he thinks might get Jesus off the hook. He says, I'm going to release to you that prisoner right now. And you can either have Jesus released to you, who has done no wrong, or you can have a convicted murderer, Barabbas, released to you. And he, he imagines that in that moment, that of course, as much as the crowd hate Jesus, that of course they would rather a murderer be kept in jail than Jesus. But the religious leaders wind up the crowd and they call for Barabbas to be released and Jesus remains in custody. And so he, he tries a second time to appease the crowd. He says, I won't sentence him to death, but I'll have him severely flogged. And so Jesus, an innocent man, is flogged. And the flogging would have been severe. They would have stripped him down so that the lashes would strike across the back and the front and the legs. And it would have been the case that the purpose of the flogging was to weaken the victim to the point of almost death or collapse. So they flog him and they, pray, they place a crown of thorns on his head to mock him. The soldiers dress him in a purple robe, which is a royal color, and they give him false homage and they say, Hail, King of the Jews, and they mock him and spit at him and jeer him and beat him. And Pilate brings him before the crowd and presents this bloodied figure of Jesus. And imagining at that point, surely that will be enough for them. He says, what would you have me do with him? And they say, crucify him. Crucifixion was the worst punishment reserved for only the worst criminals in the Roman Empire. In fact, if you're a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified no matter what, except for treason. It was the most brutal form of execution. The American Medical Association, the Journal of the American Me Medical Association, says that although Romans did not invent crucifixion, they perfected it as a form of torture and capital punishment that was designed to produce a slow death with maximum pain and suffering. In crucifying people, you'd be laid over a wooden cross and typically the style in which Jesus was executed would have meant that his feet were folded one over the other and a single nail driven through both feet, that he would have been fixed to the bar of the cross by a nail through both wrists. And in the journal... It indicates that this was particularly painful as it crushed the sensory motor nerve. It would have said white-hot pain through the arms. Most people died over hours or even days from asphyxiation. It was designed for a slow and painful death. And right now, as we gather, it's 10 in the morning. 
which means that at this point in the day, Jesus would have been on the cross already for an hour and he'll remain there until 3 p.m. And the question with all of this that seems so tragic and so wasteful is, what is the point of it all? What is the point of all this? And that's what we see in the text we're about to read. Come with me to Matthew 27, 45 to 51. It says, Now from the sixth hour, that's midday, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let's see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Why did this happen? When Jesus dies, the temple and the curtain is torn in two. And the temple and the curtain was meant to signify that humankind and God had been separated by sin. And when Jesus dies, it opens the way to God because Jesus died to take our sin. Remember in the garden when Jesus is first arrested and he doesn't resist. In fact, he tells his disciples not to defend him. The reason that he gives is he says, I must, this must happen so that the scripture will be fulfilled. And what scripture is he talking about? There were many scriptures that pointed forward to a king who would serve and die for his people. But one that stands out is Isaiah 53. Read this with me. In Isaiah 53 we read, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned away every one of us. And the Lord has laid on him the sin of us all. Jesus' death was an exchange. His death for our sin. And the simplest and easiest way I've seen this explained is like this. Imagine this were a record of all your wrongs and all the sin that we had committed that kept us from God. And it serves as a barrier between us and God. When Jesus dies on the cross, he takes upon the penalty for sin on himself so that for all who trust in him, there is now nothing between you and God. The temple curtain is torn and the way to God is made clear and you are forgiven and set free and washed pure, made new. This is the message of Good Friday. This is why it's celebrated, is that this is where you find real and genuine forgiveness. The forgiveness that I think Truman Capote was looking for, but the forgiveness that deep down all of us are looking for. And the sense that Good Friday is to give us is the sense of the weightlessness of forgiveness. I don't know if you've ever been on one of those carnival rides or if you're at the Easter show. I don't know if there's one there this year. I'm about to find out. We'll see. But there are those rides, maybe they used to be called Gravitron, where you just spin endlessly for several minutes. It feels like decades, but it's only a minute or two. But the, you're in a cylinder and you stand against the wall. And as it spins, the centrifugal force pins you against the wall so that you can barely move. Then the floor drops out and you remain kind of stuck to the wall. Just to give me some indication, has anyone done this or at least know what I'm talking about? Okay, great. That's helpful. When the ride stops, you feel so weightless, you almost feel like if you jump, you won't come back to earth. Right? You just feel like after having felt about 10 times as heavy as you actually are, when it stops, 
The release is actually, it's probably the best part of the ride, also because you don't feel nauseous anymore. There is the sense that this invisible and immense burden has been lifted off you. That's what forgiveness is in the gospel. The burden of sin released forever, never to come back. And it doesn't have to happen over and over again. Jesus' sacrifice was once for all and complete, so that once you are forgiven, you are forgiven forever in him. Do you know the greatest selling fiction novel of all time is a book called Pilgrim's Progress. Actually, it's called The Pilgrim's Progress from This World to That Which Is to Come, delivered under the similitude of a dream, wherein is discovered the manner of his setting, his dangerous journey, and safe arrival at his desired country. That, people just had a longer attention span in the 17th century. But it's written by John Bunyan, and it's kind of like a fictionalized account through kind of the means of a dream, a dream kind of scenario, of his own conversion to Christianity, of him finding forgiveness in Jesus. And it centers on a character called Christian, who bears a giant burden called sin, and is looking and traveling everywhere to find some way to release it from him because he cannot get it off his shoulders. And the story kind of peaks when he comes to the cross. And I want to read you just this short section of Pilgrim's Progress right at the end to finish our time together reflecting on the cross. It says, He, Christian, ran till he came to a place somewhat ascending. And upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from his shoulders and fell from his back and began to tumble and so continued until it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and he said with a merry heart, he has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then Christian leapt for joy and went on singing. Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could anything else ease the grief that was within. Till I came here, what a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall off my back? Must here the strings that bound it to me crack? Blessed cross, blessed tomb, blessed rather be that man that there was put to shame for me. Blessed be Jesus. This is why we call it Good Friday. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your love for us in Christ Jesus. That he suffered and died and rose again to defeat sin and death, that we might find forgiveness and healing and renewal in you. And Father, we pray that this morning, as we sing and as we reflect, you would give us a sense of your goodness, your mercy, your kindness and your forgiveness in Jesus, that it might be our hope and our joy. Amen.